Welcome to Quick Hits, the only podcast that gets you smartenized. Today's episode, I've got your number. We are constantly bombarded by studies and statistics. Some of them are telling us we have to do this thing in order to live longer. Others are telling us we have to not do that thing in order to live longer. And a lot of times, they're contradictory. We'll see a study one week that says, oh, coffee's good for you. And a study the next week saying, oh, no, it's terrible for you. And it's important to be able to understand these things and figure out which ones are real and which ones are not not only for our own peace of mind, but also because we're seeing a lot of things being done through legislation and litigation based on these studies that affect our lives on a day-to-day basis. Now, this show is going to be a little different than the quick hits that you're used to. I'm going to explain what statistics are, how they work, what they can really determine and what they can't determine, And I don't really have a lot of smart-ass comments for this one. I hope that I can make it a little entertaining for you. But it's going to be a little different style than what you're probably used to if you're a regular listener of this show. It's also going to be quite a bit longer. You just simply can't cover this information in 10 minutes or less. I thought of breaking it up into separate shows and then thought, nah, I'm not going to do that. We'll just do it all in one shot. The technical term for statistics is epidemiology. It's used to study epidemics, to try and determine what causes them and which people are most likely to fall prey to them. In order to better understand it, let's do a hypothetical study. I am Joe Scientist, and I have a hypothesis that drinking coffee increases your risk of getting athlete's foot. So I'm going to do a statistical study, an epidemiological study, and I'm going to find out if that's really true or not. In the process of creating this study, I'm going to generate a lot of different numbers, but the two most important ones are the relative risk, or the risk ratio, referred to as the RR, and the confidence interval. Now, first of all, to determine the relative risk, I have to find out what the incidence of athlete's foot is in the general population. So I do my research, and I discover that 10 out of every 1,000 people have athlete's foot. And that number becomes my RR of 1.0. No increase or decrease in risk. That's my baseline that I'm working with. Now I do more research amongst coffee drinkers, And let's say I find that amongst coffee drinkers, 15 out of every 1,000 have athlete's foot. That gives me an RR of 1.5, a 50% increase. Let's say I discover that 20 out of 1,000 coffee drinkers get athlete's foot. Now I've got an RR of 2.0. And if by any chance I go the other way, Let's say I find that only 7 out of every 1,000 coffee drinkers get athlete's foot. I've got an RR of 0.70, below 1.0, and that indicates a protective effect. These numbers are usually referred to in articles by the mass media as percentages. The RR of 1.5, 
would be declared a 50% increase. The RR of 2.0 should be declared a 100% increase, but a lot of times it would be declared a 200% increase because most journalists have absolutely no clue about how any of this stuff works. Now I have to find out what my confidence interval is. Now technically a confidence interval is not a margin of error, but conceptually that's the way that it works. It's a range of numbers that the real RR could be in. So let's say I've got the 1.5 RR and I calculate my confidence interval and it goes from 1.25 to 1.75. That means that the real RR, the real risk, could be anywhere from 25% to 75%. And to throw one more number in here at you, that confidence interval is calculated at a 95% certainty rate. We're 95% certain that the real RR falls within that confidence interval. Now let's change the scenario a bit. Let's say that the confidence interval goes from 0.95 to 2.1. Notice that 1.0 is included within that span. And that means the number could be 1.0, and that means that my study is not statistically significant. When you hear the phrase that something's not statistically significant, that means that the confidence interval included 1.0. Now, if you think of this whole thing as a sliding scale, if you move the relative risk up and down on the scale, you'll see that the confidence interval will slide along with it. And when you get to lower percentages, Percentages like 25%, 30%, and I've seen surveys that make claims of 15%. What happens is the likelihood of that confidence interval hitting 1.0 is pretty high. And even if it doesn't, even if it kind of nudges up against it but isn't quite there, all you need is one or two mistakes in a study, and every study has them, and you'd include 1.0. It wouldn't be statistically significant. And this is why real epidemiologists like to see an RR of 2.0 or 3.0 before they get excited. When Marsha Engel was the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, she said, as a general rule of thumb, we are looking for a relative risk of three or more before accepting a paper for publication. Robert Temple, as the Director of Drug Evaluation at the FDA, said, My basic rule is if the relative risk isn't at least three or four, forget it. And the National Cancer Institute said, Relative risks of less than two are considered small and are usually difficult to interpret. Such increases may be due to chance, statistical bias, or the effect of confounding factors that are sometimes not evident. What are confounding factors, you ask? Uh, hold on, hold on, we're going to get to that shortly. So the bottom line is, a smart and nice person that looks at a study that says, oh, there's a 25% increase, there's a 30% increase, they're going to say to themselves, wait a second, that's an RR of 1.25, 1.3. That's really meaningless. That's just too close to call. Trying to measure numbers that small with statistics it's like trying to use a yardstick to measure millimeters. The tool is just too crude to do the job. 
Now let's put this into a real world situation. We're all familiar with the story of Vioxx, how it got pulled from the market because it had a 300% increase in heart attacks and strokes. The increase in heart attacks and strokes did have an RR of 3.0. But you want to look at the actual numbers as well. In the age group that Vioxx was aimed at, the odds of someone having a heart attack or a stroke in any given year was about 1 in 1,000. If they took Vioxx for 18 months or more, those odds went up to 3 in 1,000. So yes, it really was an RR of 3.0. It really was a 200% increase. The media reported it as a 300% increase. An important thing to know, a dangerous risk but a risk that a lot of people were willing to take. I got an email from someone, this old guy named Charlie writes to me from time to time. He's 87 years old, and Vioxx was the difference between sitting in a chair afraid to move because it caused him so much pain, or leading an active life. Now this guy is 87 years old, and he just got married. So you gotta love that. And he was perfectly willing to take that increase in risk to be able to enjoy the last few years of his life. But, of course, that choice was taken away from him. So if a study concerns you, even if you see a 300% increase or a 500% increase, look at the actual numbers. Because if something goes from 1 in 10,000 to 5 in 10,000, that's not nearly as big a risk as if it goes from... 5 and 100 to 25 and 100. Both scenarios are going to give you an RR of 5.0. Now let's take a look at the different types of studies. There's a lot of different kinds of studies out there, but basically there's three that are most often used. The first is a cohort study. And in a cohort study, you take a huge sample of people, tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000 people, and you follow them and track them for decades, for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you watch what they're doing, and then you see what maladies strike them and see if there's a connection between the two. Now, obviously, a study like this is very expensive and very time-consuming, and therefore it's not done all that often. But when it is done, it's the kind of study that's going to give you the very best results that you can get, assuming that the rest of the study is run correctly. The second type of study, and you're going to run into this an awful lot more often, is a case control study. In a case control study, you start with a group of people that already have a disease, and then you compare them against the general public, and you try and find a correlation between behavior and the illness. Now, this isn't quite as accurate because you're starting with people who are already sick, but done well and done properly, you can get really good results with it without the expense of a cohort study. And the third common type of study is a meta-analysis. Now in theory with a meta-analysis you take data from several different studies and you pool them together and you come up with a number that means something. But in practice it seldom works that way. Meta-analysis allows you to cherry-pick the data and that's almost always done you know what you want your results to be, so you'll only pick the studies that will support it. You take those studies, you throw them in a data blender, you press the bullshit button, you puree it a little bit, you put your hand in, turn the blender off first, and pull out any numbers that you want.
The mass media seldom uses the term meta-analysis. They do occasionally. But they'll also talk about pooled data or a study of studies. And if you see that, you can be 99.99% sure that you are dealing with absolute, complete bullshit. Okay, so you found a study. It addresses an issue that you're concerned about. You've found some more details and data on the study. And now you want to examine it and see if it really is valid or not. A lot of people will make the mistake of saying, well, it was published in a peer-reviewed journal, so it must be good. Uh, no, that's definitely not the case. I've seen some real garbage published in peer-reviewed journals. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that a peer-reviewed journal, the peers will check the math. If the methodology is bad or whatever, they will put it out there. And what you don't see is the subsequent issues of that journal where people write in and tear the study to pieces. So don't fall for the peer-reviewed journal trap. Now, you've got your study, and you want to look, and you want to see if it makes sense, if it was done correctly, and if the right methodology was followed, and if the right things were considered. And one of the things that you want to look at is confounders. That's an easy word to remember, because these are things that confound a study. For instance, if you were doing a study of longevity, you'd have to take into account the factor that women live longer than men. Men die sooner because we want to. Not only do women live longer than men, but rich people live longer than poor people, probably because of access to medical care. But we're not interested in the why. We just need to know that. And we call that socioeconomic status because we don't like using the word class. We like to pretend that that doesn't exist in this country. But what you're really looking at is the economic class of the people that you're studying. Even after you factor in the socioeconomic status, you'll find that black people don't live as long as white people. And people in some countries tend to live longer than people in other countries. All of these things are confounders that you have to figure in when you're doing a study on how long people are going to live, referred to as a study of morbidity. Because, again, we have to use big words to sound important when we're doing scientifical things like this. In our hypothetical study of foot fungus, we might want to consider how often people change their socks, what kind of footwear they use, does anybody else in their family have athlete's foot because they're sharing showers with them? Are they athletic and do they take showers in public places? All those things would be confounders that would affect the study. Let's take a look at a real-world situation. You're trying to study the effects of tobacco exposure, either to a smoker or to the people that are around them. The confounders you've got to account for include age, allergies, nationality, race, medications, Compliance with those medications, education, gas heating and cooking, gender, socioeconomic status, exposure to other chemicals, occupation, use of alcohol, use of marijuana, consumption of saturated fat and other dietary considerations, their family history of cancer, and domestic radon exposure, just to name a few. And if you're trying to extend this to kids, you want to do SHS studies on kids, you have to account for all of those things, except for occupation, because it's not likely the kid's going to have a job. 
But you need to take all those things into account, plus breastfeeding, crowding, daycare and school attendance, maternal age, maternal symptoms of depression, parental allergies, parental respiratory problems, and prematurity. All those things are going to affect someone's health, and all of them have to be factored in. Now you can see why it's so difficult to do a good, fair, honest study. We're covering an awful lot of material here. Let's take a little break. Friends, if you want a high-paying, rewarding career, the Matchbook School of Contemporary Journalism is just what you're looking for. If you can run a blog on GeoCities, you too can learn to be a highly paid, highly respected journalist. The Matchbook School of Contemporary Journalism will teach you everything you need to know. Here's just a small sample of the informative lessons you'll be receiving. Lesson 1, For the Children. You'll learn how to give every story, regardless of what it is, a for-the-children angle. It doesn't matter if it's a story about a shortage of Depends undergarment or a new cure for Alzheimer's. You'll learn how to frame it as an imminent threat to the nation's youth. Lesson 2 will teach you how to accept claims and statistics from everyone unquestionably. It won't matter if it's coming from a nicotine nanny, from the grease police, from the loony left, or the religious Reich. You'll just print those numbers without any question whatsoever. Develop the unquestioning attitude that if an expert said it, it must be true. Lesson number three, how to get together with other graduates of the Matchbook School of Contemporary Journalism and print the same story in a multitude of places, giving you the ability to use each other as sources, further establishing your credibility. Yes, you'll receive lesson after lesson of what it takes to be a contemporary journalist, including the final bonus lesson where you'll learn to never, ever listen to the Quick Hits Podcast. Yes, the Quick Hits Podcast will get you smartenized, leaving you completely unqualified for this exciting career. There's no worry about qualifying at the Matchbook School of Contemporary Journalism. Just answer these two questions. Does the use of a teletype as a background sound effect for this commercial seem like an anachronism? Do you know what the word anachronism means? If you answered no to either of these questions, congratulations, you just passed the entrance exam. Look for an application form on a matchbook near you. Fill it out, send it in, and you've taken the first step on an exciting and rewarding career. Please do not mail matches. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, and I'm going to throw a little bit more at you, but if there is only one thing that you remember from this entire show, this is the most important. Correlation does not equal causation. You will find this in Chapter 1 of any book on statistics. All that epidemiology can say is there might be a connection between these two things. The higher the RR, the more likely that there's a connection. But it still doesn't prove it. You cannot prove anything with statistics. This is a basic fact that is completely overlooked by people who wave statistics around like crazy and say, look, look, this proves that doing this causes that. No, it doesn't. All it does is suggest that there's a probability that there's a connection between the two things. Now, sometimes there's a high correlation, but it's due to an overlooked confounder. Many years ago, a study was done amongst elderly nuns, and it found that they had a higher rate of breast cancer than the general population. This inspired a study to compare family size with breast cancer, and it was found that the more children that a woman had, the less likely she was to get breast cancer. More studies were done, 
and it was confirmed. But then somebody said, wait a second, women who have large families tend to get pregnant earlier in their life than later in their life. If you're going to have 10 kids, you don't start when you're 35. So this led to research comparing the age of a woman at her first pregnancy to breast cancer later in life. And it turned out that that was the connection. It had nothing to do with family size at all. The studies that preceded this, that said family size determined the protective effect, were all carefully done, peer-reviewed, published in peer-reviewed journals, and wrong. It was an overlooked confounder that caused the effect. We've been hearing for years that drinking just a little bit is good for your health. But it turns out that most of the surveys that were done on this simply asked people, how much do you drink? And the people that didn't drink anything at all had poorer health. Someone said, wait a second, why don't they drink anything at all? And in most cases, it was because they were alcoholics. And at one point in their life, they drank an awful lot. And that was the reason that their health now wasn't as good as someone who drank moderately. So all these studies that say, oh, drinking red wine or having a beer is good for your heart or good for your cholesterol, not so much. Again, an overlooked confounder caused the effect. Let me repeat myself, because this is the most important part of this entire excessively long show. Correlation does not equal causation, and statistical epidemiological studies cannot prove anything. You prove things by doing empirical studies where you're actually experimenting on rats or mice or whatever. You don't prove it with statistics. All right, let's take a quick look at some other errors that you can find in a study. Let's say you've got a six-sided die, and you roll it, and it comes up three. Now you publish a study that says when you roll a die, it comes up three 100% of the time. You're absolutely correct. You did your study okay, except for one little problem. Your sample size was ridiculously small, and so what you've done is meaningless. How many times do you have to roll the die to make sure that it comes up an even number of times? Certainly not 6, or 12, or 24. You've got to do it quite a few times. And now, let's take one small change. Let's say one side of that die is weighted so it comes up 5% more often than the other sides. But you don't know which number comes up. How many times do you have to throw that die to make the determination that it's the number six or the number four, whatever number it is, quite a few. I asked on a board how you would figure that out, how many times you'd have to roll a die, and I'll tell you, the math was beyond me. But you can see how important a big sample size is. If you see a study that's got 50 people in it or 100 people in it, you don't have to pay too much attention to it. You really want to see several hundred people, and it's really best to have thousands. If you've got 2,000 people in a study, in a case control study, usually they'll have uh, five or 600 cases and uh, 1,500, 1,600 controls. 
at least their sample size is big enough that the numbers might be correct. Quick, how many servings of beef did you have in August of 2003? Now, if you were taking a survey or being interviewed, you're probably just going to guess because you really have no idea. And everybody else that does it is also going to make guesses and those numbers are going to be marked down as if they were facts and that data used in the study. However, if you have a disease or an illness that is associated with excessive beef consumption, you're much more likely to guess high than guess low. And so is everybody else that has that illness. This is called recall bias, and it's a built-in problem anytime you're doing a retrospective study, something that goes back years as far as behavior is concerned. Have you ever filled out one of those little forms that they have for magazines or subscriptions or surveys, and it asks you what your salary range is? And it say, oh, is it 20000 to 30000 30000 to 40000 whatever, and you look at that, and you check the box that's just one tick above what your real salary range is. Have you ever done that? Yeah, me too. And that's why you see magazines touting that, well, everybody that reads their magazine is in the $70,000 income range. Uh, probably not. That's called misclassification bias, and it happens all the time. And then, of course, you have researcher bias. And a lot of times the researcher really wants to come up with a specific conclusion because he wants to come up with something that is going to please the people who are funding him. If he doesn't, he's not going to get any more funding from that source. If he does, they're going to hire him to do more studies and more surveys. Another invisible factor that affects things is publication bias. If my athlete's foot study comes up with a 25% increase, but it's not statistically significant, it's not likely to get published. And if 10 other researchers do a similar study and come up with similar numbers that are not statistically significant, ho-hum, what's for dinner? That's boring. Nobody wants to publish that. But if researcher number 11 comes up with a 50% increase that is statistically significant, ah, that's much more likely to get published. So the misses hardly ever get published. Only the hits make it to the medical journals. I appreciate you staying with me all this long. I know there's been an awful lot of data here. So I'm going to close off with just a quick list of things to check for if you see a study to determine if it's really valid or not. First of all, what's the RR? If it's less than 2.0, you can probably just write it off. What kind of study was it? If it was a cohort study, very good. If it was a case control study, not quite as good, but still not bad. It could be valid. If it's a meta-analysis, you can blow it off completely. The odds of it being garbage are pretty damn close to 100%. All right, it's past those two questions. The next question is, how big is the sample size? Is it a really big sample size, or is it only 25 or 50 or 100 people? If the sample size is too small, it's highly likely that the results are bogus. How was the data gathered? Was it gathered with a survey that asked people what they did years and years ago? Then you've got all that recall bias and misclassification bias and all the other problems that you have to deal with there. 
Here's one we didn't really talk about much. Is there a dose-response relationship? If in my coffee survey I find that four cups of coffee a day causes a 25% increase and 10 cups of coffee a day causes a 50% increase, then I've got a dose-response relationship. If there is no dose-response relationship, if the numbers are the same whether somebody drinks one cup of coffee a day or 10 cups a day, then it's likely that the numbers really don't mean anything. What confounders were adjusted for? You want to see a really big, long list of confounders for most studies. If you only see two or three, then you really shouldn't have a whole lot of faith in the study. And if you've gotten this far, and it looks like this may be a valid study, you want to look at who funded it and what their motives and agendas are. Now, if you saw a study on secondhand smoke that was financed by the tobacco companies, you'd probably just write it off because they have a long history of lying and they've got an agenda that's pretty obvious. But what about studies on the same subject from the American Cancer Society and the American Lung Association? Well, they also have a very long history of waving around bogus studies and using them to prove things. Both of them constantly refer to the 1993 EPA study on secondhand smoke, a meta-analysis that was just absolute garbage. They also praise the Helena study, a study with a sample size of 50 that used absolutely no standard protocols and was put together by a couple of anti-smoking activists. And they promote these studies as if they actually prove something. So studies that they financed should be disregarded for the exact same reasons that you would disregard studies financed by the tobacco industry. If you only retain 10% of what you've learned here, you know more about statistics, more about epidemiology than just about anybody out there. Certainly more than most journalists and reporters who just report anything that they're told. They simply don't know enough to look into it, and they're too busy, and frankly, they don't often care enough to really make sure that what they're reporting is accurate. And because you now know so much about statistics, because you know so much about how to debunk studies, how to determine if they're worth anything, congratulations. You've been smartenized. All of this information is available on my website. If you go to DaveHit.com, on the left-hand side, you'll see all the little subsites there, and one of them is The Facts. Click on that, and you'll find two pages, Epidemiology 101 and Epidemiology 102, that go over all of this information. You'll also find on just about every page of that website an email link. And I'd really like to hear from folks, especially on this show, because it's very, very different than what I usually do for quick hits. And I'd like to know if you love it, if you hate it, if you found it useful, boring, entertaining, whatever. I'm really looking forward to getting the feedback on this, either positive or negative. You can also find my email address in the mp3 tags of this file. And if you're more the talkative type, dial 206-203-4488. And that's 206-203-HIT. And that's an interesting service where you leave your message 
and it gets emailed to me as an MP3 file, so I can not only listen to it, but if I decide that I want to, I can put it in the upcoming show. And once again, I'm going to make a plug for the Podcast Peer Awards. If you're a podcaster, get your ass over there and sign up. We are picking out the best podcasts and having a good time doing it. If you're a listener, well, come on over. There's a page there for nominations. You'll find some podcasts there that I guarantee you haven't heard of before that are really good and are doing really well in the nominations process. Now, I usually close this off by saying this is just a journal of one man's opinion and shouldn't be taken too seriously, but I'll tell you what, folks, there's not a lot of opinion in this particular episode. And if you've listened to it and you understood even just a part of it, you are one of the few, the proud, the smartenized. <laughs>